And Lord, we pray today that you will guide us just as clearly, just as definitely as you did your people of old. But help us to learn, Lord, in the midst of all of this that you have lessons to teach us and that's why you lead us in the path that you have. Help us, Lord, to see that your reasons are good and they result in ultimately your honor. Help us, Lord, this morning to behold wondrous things out of your law that will encourage us and challenge us comfort us and correct us and we pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus our Savior amen amen John Patton was a missionary in the New Hebrides Island he left his native Scotland with his wife and I cannot remember whether they had a child when they left or had a child when they arrived But at that time, the islands were inhabited by cannibals. The last missionaries that came there were killed and eaten. And now Patton was there with his wife and little child, and things were not going well. The people resented their presence, did not welcome their message. He was still trying to learn the language, and progress was slow. And one night he had heard that there was a group of men that were coming to his hut and their intentions were evil. They carried weapons and Patton thought this was it. What could he do? He was on an island, nowhere to go, no friends to call. And so he prayed. He and his wife lifted up their voices in prayer, and I'm sure tears, and they prayed and they prayed, and the amazing thing was nothing happened that night. It passed without incident. And the next day, they began their work, or continued their work, just as they had done before. In time, he learned the language and shared the gospel, and people all across those islands put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. In fact, John Patton said, When I came to the islands, all you could hear were the drums of the cannibals. And when I left the islands, all you could hear were the sound of church bells calling people to worship. What a transformation. One of the chiefs who had been converted said years later to Patton, I've been meaning to ask you, Missy, who were those people that protected you the night we came to kill you? And John said, what do you mean? He said, well, we were coming one night. Not too long after you had arrived and a group of us were intending to kill you just like we had done to the other white people who came. And we came with clubs and spears and we were coming to surround your hut and when we got close there was an army of men dressed in white surrounding your hut. And we dropped our weapons and ran in fear. Who were those guys? (laughs) And John realized that God had delivered him in quite an amazing way with the angels of the Lord. And it reminds me of this truism, this, this proverb, that when you and I are found to be in some impossible place, that's when God often does his best work. And so, he allows us to get into the impossible place just so he can show us that he is God. I think that's what's happening in Exodus chapter 13 
through 15. Open your Bibles to Exodus 13 as we return to our study of the life of Moses. And I want you to notice verse 17. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go. (laughs) What a statement. I mean, I read that and I say, wait a minute. If you're just coming into the story, there's a whole lot that's happened before Pharaoh would let the people go. I mean, Moses growing up in Egypt and having to run for his life and being on the backside of the desert and then being called of God to go back and deliver his people from bondage. 400 years of being a slave. And God said to Moses in chapter 3 and verse 19, he said, I I want you to know that the king of Egypt is not going to let my people go unless a mighty hand compels him. So... I will stretch out my hand, and I will do wonderful, amazing things. He says in chapter 6 of the book of Exodus, Because of my mighty hand, Pharaoh will let you go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive you out of his country. In that same chapter, I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And the last mighty act of judgment was the death of the firstborn. From Pharaoh down to the lowest slave in Egypt, if there was no blood on the door, the firstborn died, and it happened about midnight. Shortly after midnight, we're told in chapter 12, verse 31, that Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said to them, Up! Leave this place. Take your people and leave my people and go worship as you requested. And so Moses and Aaron led the people of God out. By the way, we're told in chapter 12 that there were 600,000 men, which means even if you estimate in a conservative fashion, two million, two million people they led out of Egypt. An amazing, astounding number. And it must have been, at the same time, both terrifying and thrilling, right? Thrilling because they were free. Terrifying because they were free. What are they going to do? Where are they going to go? What's going to happen to them? They didn't know. But Pharaoh finally allowed his vice grip to be removed from the people of God because of the mighty hand of God. And they were on their way out. And as I think of this story in the crossing of the Red Sea, I'm reminded of some important thoughts. And I want to share those with you this morning. The first thought is a blessed one. It's a blessed thought. He leadeth me. We sang a moment ago. Oh, blessed thought, right? I mean, think about that. Can there be anything greater than God leading you? He leadeth me, O blessed thought. Those words are filled with heavenly comfort. It means wherever I go and wherever I may be, it's God's mighty hand that is leading me. And I should never forget that. That is a blessed thought. So we read in the text... Let me jump down to verse 19. Well, verse 17 says that God led them. And we'll talk about how he did that. But verse 19, Moses responded in faith. 
That is, we follow the Lord by faith. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph made the sons of Israel swear some 400 years before, when God comes to deliver you, and he surely will, you must carry my bones with you from this place. Imagine that promise ringing in their ears and beating in their hearts for 400 years. God's going to deliver us. God's going to deliver us. God's going to deliver us. Now he has. The realization of generations, the anticipation of generations now realized, fulfilled. And Moses gathers up those bones in some ossuary and off they go. And the box reminded them, God is faithful to his promise. God is faithful to his promise. And all through the wilderness wandering for 40 years, they had the bones of Moses or the bones of Joseph to remind them, God is faithful to his word. Moses took those bones by faith. We have to walk by faith. Secondly, notice that this leading of God is rather certain. Very certain in their case, verse 20. As they left Sukkoth, they came to Ethan on the edge of the desert. And by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night it was a pillar of fire. And the fire gave them light so they could travel by day or they could travel by night. And get this. Neither the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night left its place. It was always in front of the people. Now I have to confess to you that I have often prayed, Lord, please bring back your leading with a pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. Wouldn't that be a lot easier? I mean, just show me the cloud and I'll go. And God says, I have. And here it is. It's called the Bible. And I'll often say, oh, Lord, I, I kind of like the cloud and, you know, fire better because I can see it. He says, my word is clear. Now, it's true. There are some things that are hard to be understood in this book. But the leading of God is often obvious and clear if you just read it. The pillar of cloud, by the way, spoke of God's presence because in the future, it's going to be the cloud, the Shekinah glory cloud that comes upon the tabernacle to speak of the presence of God. And fire already spoke of God's presence. Remember the burning bush? And what's going to happen at Sinai, Exodus chapter 20? God's presence is in the cloud and in the fire. And he speaks from the cloud to his people and he guides them he's always with them he never leaves he's always in front of them to pioneer the way and god leads us with his word in a very obvious and clear way praise god for his leading without this book we would be wandering we would be lost we would have no hope or no direction But the third thing about God's leading kind of brings us back to reality a little bit. I mean, that is real, but here's the other side of reality. Verse 17, the route is not often an easy one. Sometimes the path is difficult. Verse 17, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that road was shorter. Now God had his reasons. He said if they face war... They might change their minds and return to Egypt. So he led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. 
I like the shorter road better than the longer road. I like the easier path better than the desert path. Don't you? If they would have taken the road uh, to the Philistine territory, that's the northern route. You go from Ramses, Egypt, follow the Mediterranean Sea east and then north, and you come up into what is today called the Gaza Strip, and you're in the Holy Land. You're in the land of Canaan, a little over 100 miles. Easy. But God said, I don't want to lead him that way because I know what's going to happen. It's going to be bad for them. They're going to face the Philistines and the outposts of the Egyptians immediately. And when they face war, they're going to want to turn right back and be slaves again. So he didn't lead them in a shorter, easy road because it was not good for them. The better path for them was the desert road and the longer path. You mean that God will sometimes lead me on the desert road and the longer path? My answer to you is yes. Because he knows what's best for you. Why does he do it? He has his reasons. He knows you. And he wants to keep you from hurting yourself. Have you ever um, seen Fiddler on the Roof? Or maybe in a Broadway play, seen it played. It's one of my favorite plays. I just love it. Love the musical. And early on, Tevia, you know, is poor and he is coming at the end of the Sabbath back home and it's late and, and his horse and cart are having problems and his wife is nagging him, you know, and he wants to get ready for the Sabbath. And he says this. He says, Lord, you've made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, it's no shame to be poor, but it's no great honor either. And then he breaks out into song. If I were a rich man. Remember the song? If I were a rich man, all day long, I'd bitty, bitty bum. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> means I, I'd do nothing. I wouldn't have to work hard. I'd just fritter away the day. I'd build a big tall house with rooms by the dozen right in the center of the town with a fine tin roof and real wooden floors below. There'd be one long staircase just going up and there'd be an even longer one coming down and there'd be a third one going nowhere just for show if I were a rich man. I'd fill my yard with animals that would be making all this noise like a, the sound of the trumpet in the ear that would be telling every passerby, there lives a wealthy man, if I were a rich man. Would it voil, spoil some vast eternal plan, he says, if I were a wealthy man? And I think God would say, no, it wouldn't spoil my plan, but it'd spoil you. Look what you'd do with it. A bunch of stupid stuff. You'd stop working, build three staircases in your house, put animals out in the yard just so people think you're rich. It'd ruin you, Tevia. That's why I'm not going to make you rich. And you and I, many of us, have prayed, Lord, go ahead, just, just make me rich. And the Lord says, no, I know what you'll do with it, just like this song. I'm not going to lead you on the shorter road because it will destroy you. I'm going to lead you on the longer road because that's my will. And so we come to the end of chapter 13 and enter into chapter 14. And the next thought now is a disturbing one. Listen to this, chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahiroth between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Now, it's difficult to know the exact journey of the Israelites out of Egypt, but the map that I want to show you I think gives a very plausible route. They head from Ramses to Succoth, chapter 12 tells us, and the first arrow gives you an indication roughly of where Succoth is. By the way, this all didn't happen in one night. For the longest time, I thought it happened in one night, you know. The, uh, the death of the firstborn, midnight, they leave, and they cross the Red Sea, and the next morning, you know, they're gone. This happened, it took several days. It was a long trip. The next arrow shows the possibility that they were actually going to go on the eastern side of the Gulf of Suez. Because they were going, remember, to Mount Sinai, right? Which is at the tip, the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. So they were probably going that route. It's a longer route, but they were following the sea. Then you come to chapter 14, and it says, retrace your steps, go backward, which probably meant they traveled west, and then came down somewhat south and encamped on the west side of the Red Sea, which means that the Red Sea crossing then would go really across the northern part of the Gulf of Suez. The scripture tells us in chapter 14 and verse 3 that they are hemmed in. To the north, there was a mountain range. To the south, impassable desert. To the west, an approaching army. And to the east, the Red Sea. Have you ever been boxed in where the only place you can go is up? Or the only place you can look for help is up? That's where they were. And I tell you, my friend, God's leading is often very dangerous because, risky, because it takes us to such a place where we come to the end of ourself, where we're boxed in, we're between a rock and a hard place. There is nowhere to run. And God is the one who led us there. Because he wants to do something amazing that he couldn't have done in another place. To make matters worse, the enemy is pursuing. We're told in verse 3, when Pharaoh gets word that you are hemmed in, that you're wandering around like you're in confusion and lost, that's going to motivate him. I'll harden his heart and he'll pursue you. That's what the Lord says in verse 4. And so verse 5, the king of Egypt was told that the people of God had fled. He let them go worship in the desert, but now they're trying to run away. And they change their minds and say, what have we done? We've lost our servants. We've lost our silver. They've spoiled us taking our goods. Our economy is ruined. Our livestock gone. Our firstborn dead. We're going after these guys. And they change their minds. So they pursue. Verse 6, Pharaoh got his chariot ready. Verse 7, they took... 600 of the best chariots. This is the SWAT team, the special forces, the Navy SEALs. But that wasn't all they took. They took all the other chariots and the officers with them. The whole army. How many chariots? A 1,000? 1,200? After a 1,000, doesn't make any difference. You've got a little group of people trying to, not a little, but uh, you've got a group of people defenseless on the run 
and here comes the army. And they hear the rumbling of the distance. And they see the dust rising up in the west. The Bible tells us in verse 9 that they overtook them. As they were hemmed in by the sea. And as Pharaoh approached, verse 10, the Israelites looked up. By the way, to look at the Egyptians at this point in time, they had to take their eyes off of the pillar of cloud and fire. Had to look in the opposite direction. And when they did, they saw the Egyptians marching after them, and they were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord, and then began this disappointing pattern that follows them all through the wilderness wandering. They look at Moses, and they begin to complain. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt? I mean, really. Is that why you've brought us here? Don't you remember us saying, verse 12, leave us alone? By the way, I went back and read through it. I don't remember seeing that anywhere. But we lose our sense of thinking. We lose our sense of perspective and memory when we are disobedient. Disobedience has a tendency to erase the mind of all former victories. And trying to justify ourselves. You know, we told you this. Don't you remember? No, all I remember is you saying, help! (laughs) And now you're trying to change the story. You see, the Israelites are much like us. They do very well when the skies are bright and sunny and the path is easy and prosperous. But when Pharaoh is pursuing us, we begin to complain. Are any of you good complainers? I'm glad they don't give an Academy Award for that. I'd be nominated every year. Complaining. They got their eyes off of the Lord and on the army. And they were in big trouble. They were terrified. By the way, Psalm 106 says they rebelled by the sea, which probably means they did more than just complain. Maybe they were taking arms up, hoping to... uh, to overthrow the leadership of Moses and maybe get a group of people and go back, surrender, whatever. That leads us to a crucial thought. We go from a blessed thought to a disturbing thought, all dealing with the leading of God, now to this crucial thought. We must trust him when he leads us, even though, at the moment, things do not look good. We've got to trust him. Look at verse 13. Moses answers the people, Don't be afraid. Stand firm, and you'll see the deliverance of the Lord. The Lord will bring you today. By the way, the Egyptians you see today, you're never going to see them again. The Lord's going to fight for you. You only need to be still. So there are several commands here. First of all, don't fear. Fear and faith never mix. Now, I don't think you and I are ever 100% fear or 100% faith. We're usually a mixture. I believe, help my unbelief. But when faith grows, fear gets smaller. Unbelief is reduced. And so strengthen my faith. Don't be afraid. This is the command that Jesus loved to give. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm here. Don't be afraid. Trust me. Don't be afraid. Hey, by the way, 2014 could hold some horrible things for us. Or it could hold some amazing things for us. And if you're basically a 
pessimistic person, you're saying, oh boy, economy's going to go in the tank, and Obamacare, no one can understand it, and I'll never be able to pay for it, and what about this problem, what about that problem, and you think of all the problems, you're just like the people by the Red Sea, I'm boxed in and nowhere to go, so I'll just complain, trust God, the road may not be easy, but as we're going to see in the end, it has a great finish. So the second command is stand firm in the faith. Some translations have the word stand still. I don't think that's what he was telling them, stand still, because in verse 15, he says move forward. Stop delaying. Get going. What he's saying is stand firm in your conviction of who I am and my promises and be still, meaning be quiet, be silent. You know that great verse, be still and know that I am God? At least a big part of it means stop talking and listen. It doesn't mean just don't move, be quiet. It means stop talking, complaining. When you talk and listen to yourself, you're only going to confuse yourself. Be still or shut up. I won't say that because parents have often come to me afterward and said, don't say that, Pastor, because I tell our kids that's a bad thing to say, and then you preach from it and say, shut up. So I won't say it. <laughs> but that's what God said. Be still. Stop complaining. And watch what I'm going to do on your behalf. I am going to fight for you. I love that. I am going to fight for you. If I do any kind of fighting, I hope it's a tag team match with God as my partner. And I'm going to tag him first and let him do the work. The scripture also says in verse 15, move forward, Israelites. Don't just stand there. By the way, he says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Get moving. I love that. Did you know that there's a time when prayer is inappropriate? Not very often, but there's a time when prayer is inappropriate. God says, be holy, and you're praying, Lord, should I be holy? <laughs> Hello? You don't need to pray about that. Go forward. And so he's told them to go forward. It's time now to move, and you've got to move by faith. And he says to Moses, now what I want you to do is raise your staff. You know, the one that was a snake, the one you raised and plagues came down. I want you to raise it now, and the water's going to divide. And the Israelites are going to go through on dry ground, two and a half million people on dry ground. And verse 19, the angel of the Lord who's been traveling in front of you is now going to go behind you. The pillar of cloud is going to be behind you. And get this, even though Pharaoh's army gets close, the fog will be in between, and on their side it will be darkness, and on your side it will be light. By the way, if the pillar of cloud and fire represent the presence of God and the word of God, there's an analogy here. The unbeliever reads the word and sees darkness. It doesn't make any sense. But once you come to saving faith in Christ, you're put on the other side, and it is light. And the word of God is life. So there the cloud is protecting them now, and uh, the army is close, and Moses stretches out his hand in verse 21, 
And the Bible tells us that the sea is blown back by a strong east wind. In chapter 15, it says that's God's nostrils breathing out his air. It wasn't a hard thing for him to do. And there's a wall of water on the right and on the left. Get this. And they walk through a wall of... How high was the wall? I don't know. 50, 80, 100 feet? How deep is the sea? Do you think that took some faith to walk between those two walls of water? That would have been scary. Lord, I'm going, but I don't like this. I I love the animated Prince of Egypt because when they're going through the sea, if some of you have seen this, a whale comes swimming up to the edge of the wall and kind of looks at the people and then swims back. Now, I don't know if that happened, but don't you think something freaky like that could have happened? As they're walking through, I'm getting spray on me, you know, and wow a long way across but God takes them through on dry ground and then Moses stretches forth his staff and the waters come back well in between time the army of Pharaoh has come they see the people of God crossing through and so they go right after them hardened in his heart he pursues and now the water comes down upon them and they sink like lead or like stones in the water chapter 15 says The Bible tells us the water flowed back over the Egyptians. Not one of them survived, verse 28, verse 30, but Israel was saved that day. Liberal theologians like to tell you that they didn't cross the deep Red Sea. They crossed a marshy place, maybe a section by the Sea of Reeds. It was shallow. Wind began to blow, dried out the shallowness of the swamp, and they walked through. Once an old Bible believer heard that, and he said, praise God. He said, if that really happened, that's a greater miracle than the crossing of a huge Red Sea, because that means that Pharaoh and all his armies drowned in a little marshy water. (laughs) You can't get away from the miracle. Take your pick. God does some amazing things. And they're saved. Now, which leads me to my final thought from this section of Scripture. His leading will always result in blessing. It may be hard. But in the end, it will be for your good and His glory. Our good, we're delivered. The Israelites were delivered that day from Egypt, and they would never see the Egyptians again. They had been delivered by the mighty hand of God. And God got the glory. Did you notice verse 4 and verse 17? I'm leading you this more difficult way, God said. So Pharaoh will pursue, and when he does, I will get the glory. I've defeated all the gods of Egypt through the plagues, and now Pharaoh and all his army, the heart and pride of the Egyptians, is going to be humbled in this sea, and I will get the glory. By the way, that's, those are the two reasons God leads us as he does. For our good and his glory. Through difficult, dangerous places for our good and his glory. And in the end, 
we will sing his praises. That's chapter 15. We don't have time to go into it, but what a great song it is, the song of Moses. You've got the chorus in verse 1. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and the rider he's hurled into the sea. And that chorus is repeated by Miriam and the women in verse 21. And then throughout this rich hymn, there are wonderful declarations of who God is. It talks about him being the one who reigns supreme, verse 18. He reigns forever and ever. Or verse 11, who is like God, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. There's a lot of memory verses here for you to pick up and hide in your heart. But look at verse 13. In your unfailing love, you led the people you redeemed. Does the love of God lead us to a place where we're boxed in? Sometimes. But his plan is to take us through. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. You're going to make it if you follow the leading of the Lord. If you walk by faith, you will arrive at the place where he wants you to be. And it sounds like Psalm 23, the very last verse. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. After God has led me like a shepherd does the sheep through the valley of the shadow, in the presence of my enemies, through wonderful rich pasture land, he leadeth me. Oh, blessed thought. Where I go, where I be, It's God's mighty hand that is leading me. Let's be encouraged. Lord, thank you for these words that put us back in a proper perspective about this thing called guidance and leading. You are there. You tell us where to go. You guide us with your presence. But at times... It's difficult. At times we see the army of our enemy instead of the pillar of cloud. At times we get discouraged and complain and want to return back to our old sinful ways. But Lord, you said if we walk by faith, you will deliver us in a rich and mighty way. You have delivered us and you will continue to guide and deliver us. And we put our faith and trust in you. May that be our experience in Jesus' name, amen.